medically, my experiences have been most unexciting, except during the flu epidemic. Ah, and what happened? I got the flu. It's the Marx Brothers Council Podcast, episode 23, Monkey Distance. Long ago, in a simpler time known as last month, we were anticipating Matthew's planned historic journey to the colonies and the resulting live audience episode of this podcast. It was one of many plans laid by Marxes and men, but a glay in the COVID-19 pandemic. <laughs> and so here we all are in a sudden, bizarre new era of quarantines, face masks, and body paint. Unless the body paint is just me. <laughs> Since most of us are living in increased confinement these days, we thought this would be a good time for an episode that brings us together. But first, let us introduce ourselves. From a safe distance of 3,000 miles, here's the man whose hoarding is finally paying off, Matthew Conium. Hello, yes, I am speaking live from the top of the Chrysler building, and whoa, it's certainly <laughs> windy. And, and hey, there's Q the Winged Serpent. Hi, Q. No, I'm lying, I'm stuck in England. <laughs> and from an alarmingly close distance, he's about 50 miles away from me right now, is the man who edited out the good-natured insult in this intro, Bob Gassell. <laughs> hey, everyone. Uh... No, let's just say I'm not going to be so generous with your other mistakes later in the show. <laughs> I am Noah Diamond, and I am here, as always, in the epicenter. Well, guys, I don't want to dwell on this here because it has very little to do with the Marx Brothers. But as both of you know, and some of our friends and listeners know, I have had the coronavirus. Oy. My wife, uh, Amanda Sisk, and I were... In the lucky majority that recovers at home, uh, we didn't have the most severe cases, nor the mildest. We were somewhere in the middle. But um, it's not fun. It's an awful one, guys. And needless to say, whether or not you personally have symptoms, there's not one of us who hasn't been affected by this global event. And one of its effects, as with all crises, especially crises that make you think about mortality, um, it deepens your appreciation of the things that are always there for you and the things that you can count on to make you happy. So in that sense, it does have something to do with the Marx Brothers and the Marx Brothers Council. How are you two doing? Doing great. I'm doing great. I'm just glad you're well and good enough to join us. And, you know, I, I, I've been safe and hold up here. And every time I cough, my wife freaks out. So sometimes <laughs> I have to go into another room and cough. But uh, other than that, I'm, I'm fine. Good. And same here, yeah. I mean, I, I work for the National Health Service, which means that I'm still traveling to work every day. Uh, and very inconveniently, I have had uh, an, the most appalling cold. So I, I have been coughing in public. You can imagine how much fun that is. Yeah. Is that even legal anywhere? <laughs> Barely. Yeah, you know, it's strange because we've suddenly entered this world where so many interactions that would have been in person are taking place um, on the internet in one way or another. Um, on one hand, we've come to really cherish and feel nostalgic about the in-person encounter. On the other hand, we are living in a time when this sort of thing is possible and common. And it occurs to me that, you know, 
I feel pretty close to uh, my two co-hosts here. We've been doing this podcast together for two years, and we've been dealing with each other for longer. Uh, and yet, had the trip to New York taken place, it would have been the first time I've ever been on the same continent as you, Matthew. And Bob, uh, you and I have met. We've seen each other at, at Marx Brothers events over the years. But I don't think we have seen each other in person since this podcast began, which is uh, surprising. And um, in the future, we will have to uh, we'll have to get together, make sure we all like each other. I think the best way of looking at it is if if it had happened, it would all be over now, whereas instead it's it's still to come. And also, if it had happened, Noah would have infected all of us. So yes, just as well. Yes. That's <laughs> a good point. I probably would. I could have been carrying it uh, at the event. It's amazing how recently we still thought we'd probably get away with it. You know, um, but uh, yes, we'll we'll probably be okay. We'll manage. Uh, I remember during the period when large gatherings were banned. Uh, well, but this is a fairly small gathering. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So what's the plan now? Uh, it's, it is merely postponed. It is definitely going to happen. Um, the Hotel Edison has very kindly um, reserved our, our reservation and not, not taken our money off us and uh, the, the airline likewise. So later in the year, probably around October time, uh, it is definitely going to happen. So keep your eyes on the Marx Brothers Council for updates about that event. It is going forward, but until then, we thought it was time for a very special episode, since we were supposed to uh, all or many of us be together in one place for episode 23. Uh, We thought it'd be nice to figure out another way to do an episode that would bring many members of the Marx Brothers Council together and combine our voices in more ways than one. First of all, we asked and you answered, and now Bob is going to reveal, for the first time ever, including to Matthew and me, the official results of the 2020 Marx Brothers Nonsensus. All right, so here we go. Uh, Interestingly, the answer to every single question was room service. (laughs) (laughs) They were just hungry. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) No, uh, actually, um, uh, for people who haven't been paying attention, uh, this actually started before any of this uh, uh, virus stuff came about, but I I wanted to put out a questionnaire just so we could get a feel for who you fans are and what you like, and um, we've got, we got, let's see, we got about 540 responses, and I'm going to go through these, uh, let's see, one by one. The first one, we just want to see how old you are, and under 14, we had three people. Uh, 14 to 21, we have 10, 22 to 39, 58, over 60, 178, mm. but the majority of us, uh, 282 people are between the ages of 40 and 60, which I guess is what you would expect, right? Yeah, that I guess that's not too surprising. In Marx Brothers fan years, 40 is really like 18, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, anyone who's alarmed by those numbers, get your kids and grandkids on board. <laughs> the next question was, what was the first Marx Brothers film you ever saw? And the winner was actually a film I never heard of because it's called I Don't Recall. 88 people <laughs> saw the film I Don't Recall, which I believe was made 
between uh, horse feathers and duck soup, but uh, I'll have to look that up. So that that was the winner. But uh, after that, uh, the n- next one was duck soup, then a night at the opera, then horse feathers. I'm curious why this would be. Did people just seek out their best ones first? Was duck soup on TV more than at the circus? Or, or people maybe just remember seeing it first because it was the first that resonated with them? What do you guys think? Um, I'm curious about the I don't recall. I mean, is that, do you think, because the majority of them were, were, were so young at the time that they didn't, they didn't take note yeah. of the title? Or did they only see a bit of it? Or That would be my response. So you, you, you can't recall? No. I mean, can you can you recall no. an occasion, but you just don't know what the film was, or can you not even recall the occasion? Not not a specific event. Actually, we're going to talk about this later on. I mean, I remember little moments here and there and little gags, but I certainly couldn't place what I saw first. In my case, I know that when I became uh, interested in seeing the movies, the local video store had duck soup and a night at the opera and none of the others. So those were the first two I saw, but it's probably not a coincidence that the two most popular ones are, are the ones that were on the shelves there. Okay. So now we go to what is your favorite Marx Brothers film? And I'm going to read these from uh, bottom to top. Number 13 and my hat's off to everybody. Number 13 is go West. Number 12 is a night in Casablanca. Number 11 is the big store. Number 10 is at the circus. Number nine is like left blank. People left, some people left that blank. Okay. Uh, then Love Happy. Five people think Love Happy is their favorite Marx Brothers film. Just think about that. They're Harpo fanatics, aren't they? That's the thing. I should have taken names and addresses here. <laughs> we should confront these people. Okay. They ate the races, then the coconuts, Night at the Opera, Monkey Business, Horse Feathers, Animal Crackers, and at number one, of course, Duck Soup, uh, with 162 responses. I guess, except for. Love Happy being that high. None of these are really that surprising. I, I just, it's hard for me to picture. And some people, you know, pick the big store and at the circus, I guess. Well, you know, like we've talked about before, a lot of people have a affection for some of these films because it's the first ones they saw. So you can't really hold a grudge uh, for anybody who would pick any of these, except for the one person who picked Go West, which I'm going to seek out. Just to clarify for anyone who may be listening who who hasn't taken part in the in the, uh, the the census, they weren't asked to rank their favorites from thirteen to one. They were just asked to put their favorite. So right, so right. some so some people did put Go West. Therefore, if it figures in the list, some people did yeah. choose that. Yeah, I'd li- I'd like to know who they are. As I was going through these responses, I think some people just did this to stir the pot and get uh, <laughs> get a little attention for themselves. And they've done a good job. They've done it. It's worked. Okay. Next, what is your least favorite Marx Brothers film? Let's see. If I want to go from top to bottom, actually, here. So your least favorite, your film, the winner is da 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 Love Happy with 183. Then Go West, yeah. Room Service, The Big Store, At the Circus, Blank. Some people didn't want to answer that one. A Night Casablanca, A Day at the Races, the Coconuts, Animal Crackers, Monkey Business, Horse Feathers, Duck Soup, and Night at the Opera. Now, I should note these last five just each got one response each. So I think they're just some wise guys. Right? Or maybe the same person voting five times. I didn't put a clamp down on multiple voting because I'm from Chicago and we... <laughs> that's how we swing, okay? <laughs> but it's interesting that they're not reverse mirror images of each other, isn't it? You would think if the same people... Were, right, that, yeah. You would think you would have more or less, uh, but there's, there are some, some variations there. Mm-hmm. 
which film would you recommend as a gateway to the Marx Brothers? Uh, we've talked about this at great length, and not surprisingly, the winner here was uh, Monkey Business with 118, then A Night at the Opera, Horse Feathers, Duck Soup, Animal Crackers, down the list, down, down, down. One person wrote Room Service. No, three people. Room Service? <laughs> then Love Happy. Really? <laughs> Matthew, you got to do a better job with uh, screening people in the group. Okay? Yeah, I think Gone with the Wind is a good introduction to the Marx Brothers. Compared to Love Happy, yes. Skidoo? No, 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 no. no. <laughs> Next is, um, which of any Marx Brothers films have you never seen? Well, the majority of people have seen them all. and But then and there's some of, the, some of the people have not seen Love Happy and uh, Room Service, or at least not claiming to have seen them, or not have seen them all the way through. I don't know. So I seem to remember being a bit surprised when we we did our uh, episode on the big store with Nick Santa Maria. Quite a few people, if I remember rightly, said that they were watching that for the mm-hmm. first time in preparation for for listening to the mm-hmm. to the podcast. Um, and I thought, wow, just imagine if there was any of their films that I hadn't seen. How exciting that would be! I imagine a lot of that has to do with the uh, books and literature over the years, which ranks it so low. People were just turned off and said, eh, I don't need to see that one." Yeah, maybe, but uh, all the same. So next on the list, we have uh, what Marx Brothers stage performance would you most have liked to have seen? And topping the list is uh, Noah Diamond's name above the title. I'll say she is with 217. And then Animal Crackers, The Coconuts, Fun in High School, uh, stage tour for A Night at the Opera um, down the list. And um, it's hard to argue with any of these. There's no right or wrong or, you know, it's whatever your preference is. Um, yeah, in a way, there's sort of two answers to this question. Whatever your answer is, it fits in with either. It would have been great to see them on stage in their prime when they were at the very peak of their powers. Or it would have been great to see them before that and see the more embryonic, primitive act that developed into the Marx Brothers we know. Mm-hmm. I would like to have seen selected scenes from room service in a, in a barn at RKO with uh, <laughs> assorted members of the uh, of the American population. I would like to have seen Harpo soil his trousers at Henderson's <laughs> One other thing I should mention here, this seems to be the first category which we in which we had a option which nobody chose. And nobody chose scenes from Go West. So <laughs> Well, once again, my hat's off to everybody. <laughs> Gives you hope in the world, yeah, doesn't yeah, it? Gives you yeah, faith. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Who's your favorite Marx Brothers director? This is a loaded question because it obviously ties into what your favorite films would be. And the winner was uh, Norman McLeod with uh, 154, then McCary, Sam Wood. And at the bottom of the list, we have Archie Mayo and Charles Reisner. I think it speaks very well of the Marx Brothers Council that McLeod came in first yeah. when his films weren't in the top two, right, in, in the favorite films rankings. So, right. so our membership is sophisticated enough to see that their best director didn't necessarily make their best films or our, our favorites. He might have split the vote, you know. Uh-huh. Oh, that's true, yeah. Mm. Like a Democratic primary. Probably <laughs> my favorite Marx directors would, would be Charles Reisner and uh, and um, Archie Mayo, just just not not on those occasions. Yeah, we should ignore uh, Victor Herman and what he did with Animal Crackers. He really mm. uh, did a number on the stage show and really made it into this great film, which was a totally different animal than what was on stage. Would have loved to have seen him do the coconuts. Would like to have seen him do that as well. To see how that would have turned out. That might have would have been a lot different than what we 
have now. Yeah. So next is who's your favorite Marx Brother writer or writing team? And not surprisingly, the winner is uh, Kaufman and Riskin with 286 responses, then Kalmar and Ruby with 133, S.J. Perlman, Sheikman and Perrin, Blank, Irving Brecker, four responses. Uh, once again, please let us know who you are. Uh, we need to identify you. Um, we want to help you. <laughs> I think again with writers, it's the more the merrier, isn't it? So, so my my favorite my favorite Marx Brothers writers would be a huge team comprised of of you know all of those of those top ones, um, particularly uh, the combination of Kaufman and Riskin and Karma and Ruby, with with Karma and Ruby in particular supplying songs as well as as well as jokes. But what what you really want is lots and lots of top writers all throwing stuff into the pot if you have to. Uh, if you have to isolate mm-hmm. them, and as as we are all doing these days, after all, um, then I guess um, we would isolate, uh, or I would isolate uh, Kaufman and Riskin, but I would certainly uh, would want them to be at least uh, within shouting distance of Kalmar and Ruby. So next, our next one is when this is, uh, let's see how honest you people are. When watching a Marx film, do you ever skip through the romantic subplot scenes and musical numbers? This was a close one. Never with 266 responses, sometimes with 252 responses, and always with 13 responses. <laughs> I admit in my younger days, I, I might have done that. I certainly fall into the never camp. I don't know what it says about me particularly. I, I, I don't feel particularly uh, heroic or, or, that, or that I want to bang any drum about it especially. But no, I never do. I always watch them. Even in your youth? No, never. No, I've al- I've always enjoyed most of them. Uh, but even even you know things mm-hmm. like Three Blind Loves, I, I stick around for. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Two Blind Loves, sorry. I had yeah, that's blind two love. Blind Loves. Three yeah. Blind Loves would be more interesting. <laughs> I think we can all agree. <laughs> <laughs> Although not at the moment, it would be positively dangerous. <laughs> that's a good point. Um, yeah, if I'm watching a movie, I'm watching the whole thing. But it, but when I was a kid, I did fast forward sometimes. Um, not always. I always liked certain of the romantic plots or love songs. Um, but I remember when I was a kid first getting into this stuff, I'm a little embarrassed to say it now, I even fo- fast forwarded through the harp solos a lot. Um, but I've, I've atoned for it many times by watching only the harp solos since then. <laughs> So next, which film would you most want found in an uncut version? And the winner was Horse Feathers, uh, without the Hayes office cuts and the uh, damaged footage, whatever whatever caused all that. Uh, people most want to see Horse Feathers. Number two was The Coconuts, which surprised me. I was I, I thought this was going to be a, a Coconuts runaway because Coconuts were missing 40 minutes from the original first preview. Granted, a lot of that was music and subplot, but I imagine there has to be at least some very good and iconic Marx material that was cut. So that's the one I would want. That's my uh, holy grail. Um, after that, we got uh, A Night at the Opera with the Italy references, and and that's it. And I guess that's those those are the choices. Yeah, coconuts for me. Yeah, me too. If you've got opera and horse feathers, uh, a casual fan seeing the uh, uncut version might not even uh, realize that they're seeing a different one because it's basically the same film. But coconuts, you're getting like a whole another half a film, actually. Oh, yeah, and because of where it lands in their career, it's yeah. of especially historic interest. Okay, so here, 
Here's the one I'm most interested in. Which lost Mark's appearance would you most like to see? And this went down to the wire. Humorisk beat out uh, tonight, America After Dark interview, 268 to 263. Uh, wow. the, tonight, the Tonight Show, uh, the Tonight uh, interview was ahead for most of the time, but within the last uh, few days, Humorisk rallied and jumped ahead. With Ernie Elders in the thing. Well, you tell me what else what else is lost. <laughs> oh, <did I> <laughs> uh, <laughs> the sixteen millimeter go west footage. Oh yeah, well I guess. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's some radio stuff that uh, from the twenties that, that didn't I, survive. I guess there are some radio shows with Seppo. We don't have any, do we? Yeah. During the run of I'll say she is all four brothers made their radio debuts, uh, but it's been it was you know live radio that was never captured. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, the uh, humor risk wins this one because it's much less likely that we'll find humor risk. I mean, through the natural course of events, the Tonight America After Dark that could turn up. It, it really kind of should turn up mm-hmm. in some form. Um, but humorisk, I think, is more deeply buried, and uh, it's more worth wishing for because it's more unlikely that we'd get it through anything but magic. Mm-hmm. It's a cruel question because it it kind of presupposes that there is somebody stood in front of you with both of them, with a you know with a with a a, <laughs> a lighter in his hand, and he's saying, "Which one do I burn?" <laughs> Um, uh, under those circumstances, you mean Mr. Tefteller? Yeah. <laughs> under those circumstances, I, I I think I really would find it impossible to to choose because they're both they both offer something that that would be literally unique in in the one case uh, actual footage of Gummo um, interacting and talking, and then in the other case, obviously this extraordinarily iconic, virtually uh, unknown in its details um movie i think i would be overwhelmingly excited to hear that either had been had been found i would bite off the fingers of anyone who had either if i absolutely had to choose um i suspect that i would find humorous of more lasting interest uh but i could at the same time i could equally understand somebody saying the opposite for the same reason well i've got a surprise for everyone (laughs) what have you turned up in your basement oh wait a minute never mind this is just a jim carrey film never mind (laughs) okay let's move on to the next uh want to know how old you were when you became a fan of the marxists and uh not surprisingly most of us were under the age of 14 but and that was the winner but surprisingly we had eight people over the age of 40 who wow uh became uh that's when they became fans. I'd love to hear those stories. So mm. if you guys want to write to us or get in touch with us, we'd love to hear the story about how somebody over the age of 40 became a Marx Brothers fan. I'm guessing it has something to do with their spouse was a big fan and they got turned on. But yeah, uh, it's hard to imagine. I'd love to hear. Yeah, I mean, For me and Noah, that would be more or less now. Just imagine, Noah, if you now encountered them. Yeah, it is hard to believe, and it's intriguing. But on the other hand, um, you know, there's a long list of things that I've been told for many years that I would love by people who, uh, you know, whose taste I admire and respect. I'm sure they're right. Um, but things I just haven't gotten around to yet, books I've been meaning to read forever, comedians or performers who people have always told me, ah, you would, that would really appeal to you. Um, and, you know, I do discover new things that I, I, um, and I always think, where, where has this been all my life? 
well, I was just watching Marx Brothers movies at the time. So I, I understand how that could happen. And I find it really encouraging, you know, as someone who would would like uh, the Marx Brothers to be uh, ever more prominent and on people's minds. Um, I think it's great that it, it can it can enter you as an adult. Is that how you want to phrase it? <laughs> yeah, I always get in that kind of trouble, don't I? <laughs> I certainly do constantly come across new things that, that become my kind of temporary obsessions. My my wife is always laughing at me for saying, "Oh, it's it's Japanese films now, is it?" You know, and I, I do I do throw myself headlong into these yeah. things, but uh, some things are just feel just so formative. Um, that it's hard. To, it's hard to imagine them not being part of the, you know, the marrow of your bones. Yeah. Uh, rather than just something you you encounter. And finally, what is it that has four pair of pants lives in Philadelphia and it never rains but it pours? And the number one answer, <laughs> popular answer, was that's a good one. I give you three guesses. That's nineteen people. Okay. <laughs> Other people answered swordfish. Is it male or female? I give up. That's irrelevant. Let's see what else we got. White duck, the manicurist, Grant's tomb, <laughs> <laughs> Uncle Sam, and Debbie Reynolds. So there. <laughs> so those are the responses. We're gonna post. The, I'm gonna post the results here on our our blog, or at least a link to all the results, so you could you could study these in detail and uh, maybe write a thesis. I would just like to remind our listeners who participated in the nonsensus that uh, we pledge the Marx Brothers Council podcast will not sell your data to a third party for any reason. Oops. <laughs> oh, no. Now Amazon knows my favorite Marx Brothers writers. And we we'll just want to thank everyone for coming out to the polls during this uh, trying time. I know you guys put your lives into your own hands, but uh, <laughs> thanks again. <laughs> well, the nonsensus is one way that we have combined uh, many voices from the Marx Brothers Council in this episode. Now on with the rest. As you probably know, we asked for submissions. We thought rather than uh, our usual lineup of anywhere from zero to two guests, we would have uh, lots of guests on this episode. We asked members of the Marx Brothers Council and readers of our blog to send us recorded greetings or questions or comments or reflections. And as a result of that, we've got about 25 guests coming up hmm. from the Marx Brothers Council and from our listenership. Uh, we want to say first and up front, thank you for this, everybody. Yes, uh, yes. This is so nice. It really has made us feel more together during this time of separation. And it's uh, in some ways a, a good temporary replacement for the live all-in-one-room episode that number 23 was going to be. So some of these are, are greetings, some of them are personal anecdotes, some are questions or observations for the three of us to respond to. Uh, we're going to go through them now and share them with you. We want to note that the YouTube version of this episode is especially worth checking out this time, because some of the contributions we've gotten from you are videos, and some have particularly visual hooks to them. So if you're listening to the audio version, uh, you might want to uh, look at the YouTube version of episode 23 too. Yes. And this YouTube version is going to be a, a bit longer as I'm going to cut the visual stuff out of the audio podcast. Roll them. Members of the council, council members, 
I'm Bruce Cannon, a mere boy and beardless youth from Brooklyn who kissed them both goodbye and now, retired, lives in the STD and soon-to-be coronavirus capital of the world, the Villages, Florida. Well, that covers everything. First and least, I want to thank Noah, Bob, and Matthew for the Marx Brothers Council and especially the podcasts. I hope to start listening to them one day. Is it too soon to consider a Marx Brothers film, A Night at the Pandemic? My heart goes out to everyone, to those that live in fear of the virus, those that have it, or have lost loved ones. I'm sorry for getting serious, but this is a dire situation the likes of which most of us have never experienced. Anyway, I'm grateful for the council and to Al Gore for creating the internet. Now, I need to wash my hands and my neck and get on to new business, but before I go, I do have one question. When are we going to cut the watermelon open? Be well, everyone. Hey there, it's Cinco Paul. I'm standing in front of my Italian Night in Casablanca poster, which I love. Also, coincidentally, wearing a Marx Brothers t-shirt. And I have a question for Noah, Matthew, and Bob. I, I'm a big collector of Marx Brothers paper, which is, you know, posters and lobby cards and, and whatnot. And was wondering if there's any particular piece of Marx Brothers memorabilia that you covet that you wish you had, whether it was a lobby card or a poster or whatever. What is it that you wish you had in your possession? We want to know. Thanks. Thank you for that question, Cinco. It is always nice to hear your voice. Uh, what do you think, Bob, Matthew? Coveted memorabilia. Well, for me, it's obvious. I would love an autographed photo of the manicurist. <laughs> Imagine if you got one and the name was just not legible. <laughs> no, but seriously, but seriously, I, I, I'm not. I've never been that much uh, into Mark's memorabilia uh, as far as value. If if something was authentic to the period and had very nice artwork, looked very good, you know, that that's all I'd want. I mean, it wouldn't even have to be from their best film. Like Cinco has his uh, Nine Casablanca poster. I don't think. That's his favorite film, but it's a nice piece of, of artwork to, to put up. I, I'm lucky, and my my wife is lucky, and my bank balance is lucky that I'm not a fan of caricature, not just um, Marx Brothers caricature, but but actually any caricature. It's not an art form I've ever really got the hang of, so it means that I'm I'm rarely tempted to to waste large sums of money on 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 things like Marx Brothers posters there is one however which is, which i do think is very very beautiful and which i would love to own we'll put a we'll put it on the blog but i'm sure you know what i'm talking about is the animal crackers poster uh which has lovely uh, painted uh portraits rather than caricatures of them that seems to have um all the atmosphere of the film it's a very sort of exciting poster to look at so i would certainly like that one um otherwise i think I, I i would just like something um that uh only i and other and other marks aficionados got i think rather than a marks brothers film poster for instance for a long time until my wife put her foot down i had uh framed on the wall um a, a picture that bob uh put up in the um in, in the facebook group of of the animal crackers set that gorgeous set of the the two staircases mm. with the yeah. the mm. kind of galley view above uh with nobody on it uh before the before the actors come on just just the set uh that was good and your wife put her foot through it <laughs> 
what I would love to have is a copy of After the Hunt oh, yeah. by Bogart. Oh, yeah. uh, good, we good know one. that yeah. that that several were made uh, because several appear in the movie. We know that they obviously were robust because they take a hell of a lot of punishment from Harpo who folds them and slaps them and sleeps under them and so on. Uh, they were almost certainly just dumped in a in a in a Paramount uh, uh, receptacle, uh, and who knows? Maybe somebody saw it and thought, "Oh, that's a pretty picture," having mm-hmm. no idea what it is, retrieved it, and and somebody to this day might have a, a genuine after the hunt with no idea in the world <laughs> as to what it actually is. I'd love one of those. Well, in Art Ducko, uh, that book that came out uh, recently, there is a full color reproduction of the the painting which maybe you could get made into a full-size poster yes if i if i had money to burn i might commission uh, a skilled artist to to make me an after the hunt and then that would be pride of place over my fireplace for the rest of my life and we've asked this before do we know whether that's the same painting in the same name of a painting that was used in the stage show uh, it is the same name, and and Bogart, the artist. I, I'm I'm almost certain that's the same as in the stage show. Yeah, uh, but whether the actual paintings used in the movie were from the Broadway production, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. I think I think not. I think we know who the artist is. The name escapes me for for the moment, but I I I think we've pinned him down as a as a Paramount artist whose job was to supply things like that ah. in movies. So I, I, it's almost certainly a different painting. Uh, what I don't mm. know is whether there was an actual, you know, a, a genuine after the hunt painting that, that people got a clear look at in the show mm-hmm. that I don't know, but, but almost certainly different. Yes. Well, I too am not much of a collector of memorabilia, mostly because I'm not much of a, uh, possessor of money, but mm-hmm. I do have some, uh, beautiful, um, pieces of memorabilia that were gifts from, from friends and colleagues. Um, some of which are beautiful and, and things I never could have otherwise acquired. Like I have the, uh, sailing away on the Henry Clay, uh, sheet music with their photograph on the front. That's a beautiful item. Uh, you know, I'm of course, uh, I lean toward, I'll say she is and all these things. And actually the one piece of memorabilia that I have that I did by myself is uh, a playbill from the Broadway run of I'll Say She Is. Mm-hmm. One thing that I've always looked for and have never managed to find is a photograph of the casino theater with I'll Say She Is on the marquee, um, which would be of any photograph of the casino taken between May of 1924 and February of 1925. Uh, it must exist. Uh, and Robert Bader told me that he has either... He either has or has seen such a photo, but that's something I'm always uh, keeping my eyes open for. Mark Brissenden, our friend who has been uh, extremely uh, active in my Twitter feed lately, uh, posting episodes of the wonderful BBC adaptation of Flywheel, Shyster and Flywheel. Uh, he has our next contribution, complete with Pith Helmet, for those of you watching the video. Well, people watching the video don't need to be told. <laughs> All right, for those of you not watching the video, it's imp- you're not watching the video. <laughs> it's important that you know these comments from Mark are coming from beneath a pith helmet. Gentlemen, question mark. Uh, re uh, your previous request for uh, Mark's brother's podcast subjects. Uh, I suggest something that's sort of been done on the 
site, the Marx Brothers site. Sort of like your earliest Marx Brothers memories. Possibly, do you remember the first movie you saw? I recall my dad had a habit of he liked Chico and the particularly his piano playing. So when a movie came on, I was about five or six or something like that. It put me in front of the TV and watch the Marx Brothers and call him when Chico came on. It was the only bit he liked. So, uh, and I have a feeling, I have a feeling it was monkey business. I couldn't quite put my finger on it, but I've always loved the whole routine with the uh, more Chevalier thing. I even did it in primary school to confuse the bullies, but I also do an impression of Maurice Chevalier, but um, if I know, I can go. If you hear the rumbling and the noise in the background, that is the socially distancing road crew digging up the road outside. Now cut that out! Anyway, strange interlude, sorry about that. Uh, that's it. Your earliest Marx Brothers memory, do you remember the first movie you saw? Farewell. Uh, well, I'll answer this briefly because I think my, I've already answered it um, elsewhere and, and everyone knows. My initial exposure to the Marx Brothers uh, was in the pages of Joe Adamson's book, uh, which was on my parents' shelf when I was a child. And before I could even really read it, I became fascinated with the photographs in it. Um, so those are my earliest encounters with the Marx Brothers, S strange looking men in black and white photographs in one of my parents' uh, most intriguing books. Well, that's interesting. How did they come to get it? It was a gift from a cousin. Um, my parents are, are, I mean, they like the Marx Brothers, but most of what they know about them, they learned from me. Um, they didn't have that book because they were huge fans. And I don't even know what drew me to that book. But when I was a little kid, I, I loved going through the books on their shelves mm. and I found them so interesting, you know, big giant art books and mm. stuff that was fascinating to a curious kid. And for some reason that book uh, landed in my lap one day and um, I was just transfixed <laughs> by their faces. Did your parents read the book? I don't think so. Cause mm. I remember later on when I, it sort of emerged that I knew about the Marx brothers, even though I'd never seen their movies because mm. I'd looked through this book so much mm. And they said, oh, yeah, I think Mitchell, our cousin, I think that I think he gave us that book. Hmm. Uh, but no, it wasn't a, it, it wasn't a big part of their you know, library in their own minds. But it, it certainly affected me more than anything else they had there. Yeah, I've spoken at length about my first important encounter with them, which was at Christmas 1983, when uh, the BBC Two showed a season of five of their movies. Uh, so it would have started with. Uh, getting the Christmas Radio Times, seeing their pictures in there, being intrigued, seeing the trailers for it, um, and then um, finally getting to see my my first movie, which was Monkey Business, on November the twenty, sorry, December the twenty third, nineteen eighty three, which I came into halfway through and became a devotee from then on. My actual first encounter with them ever though was earlier and i can't put a date on it i can't even put a year on it but it was almost certainly a program on television called looks familiar which was presented by uh, dennis norden i'm pretty sure it was that it was certainly a clip a television show in which a guest chose film clips mm -hmm. so i think that was what it was and the guest was spike milligan uh and so the first bit of marx brothers footage i ever saw was uh, was a short extract from the finale of a night of the opera 
with Harpo. I vividly remember Harpo uh, running up the the uh, the theatrical flat background. Um, and the other thing I, I distinctly remember is the interviewer saying to Spike Milligan, "Now for your for your next uh, clip, you've chosen the Marx Brothers in a night at the opera. Tell us why." Mm-hmm. And Milligan said. Because I want to see the Marx Brothers in a night at the opera. <laughs> I wish I had a more specific memory of my first uh, viewing. I just know that uh, growing up in Chicago, their films were always on WGN, uh, Channel 9, usually on Sunday afternoons. Uh, I'm certain I came across them there. Uh, I certainly do recall falling in love with uh, Harpo, first of all, specifically the gag where in Night at the Opera, where they open up the trunk and they open up the drawer and he's asleep in the drawer. I think that was the first, my first little wow moment with the Marxists. But other than that, it's all really a blur. I mean, uh, the books, uh, the record albums, I, I can't really tell what came first. Well, some members of the Marx Brothers Council, uh, rather than submitting questions or reflections to us, have submitted performances readings or musical performances, and we will enjoy those too as we go through uh, this list. Coming up first is Cheryl Rice. Cheryl Rice is uh, an esteemed council member and also a wonderful poet. Her most recent compilation of poems is entitled Love's Compass. Hi, my name is Cheryl, and I have a poem called Life at the Speed of Groucho. It took you 80 years more to live it, and the facts are sketchy, clipped as they are from the script of your life. I wonder about the texture of your bald head, the smell of your grease paint mustache. It took me a couple of weeks between calls at work, a page or two in the evening, to run through the stats, get the wives, daughters, mothers straight. But Groucho, Julius, 20 years after you wheezed your last crack, A nurse looking for your temperature was teased with, don't be silly, everybody has a temperature. Your true walk will never be clear, how your black eyes rolled over this same white way at the start of the last 100 block. A doctor? Minnie knew better. Your meds wouldn't fit in a bottle. Ills of the world? Better served by a hackenbush, a spalding, a groucho ready to spring ducked into low crouch out of establishment's way, clawhammer coat to pry the dust from Edwardian mines, groucho at the mic, and the secret word is... Thanks. Hi, everyone. I hope this uh, message finds you all as well as can be expected at the moment. I'm Andrew T. Smith, by the way. Hello. Nice to speak to you again. Um, I just wanted to get in touch to give a nod to the actor Vincent Marzello, who um, passed away recently after having suffered from uh, both cancer and dementia in recent years. Um, Vincent was an actor who was born in Brooklyn, but spent most of his career in the UK. And he became one of those those transatlantic faces that you really enjoy seeing pop up in films like uh, Superman, The Spy Who Loved Me, uh, The Witches, and just many, many more. Uh, but the reason I mention him to you is that he was also one of the repertory actors in the BBC adaptation of Flywheel, Shyster and Flywheel. Um, he was... Um, tasked with playing a number of parts and often played 
um, I suppose, in the appropriate period style, uh, little guys with a grudge. So lots of doormen, cops, gangsters, and whatever the episodes called for, really. It was, it was a very versatile performer. Um, he was also married to his co-star in that series, Lorelai King, who played Flywheel's receptionist, Miss Dimple. Um, and obviously, you know, my sympathies absolutely go out to her this, this time, and um, particularly in, in the current climate. Um, and I just think, you know, we've already said a goodbye to the vast majority of actors who worked alongside the, the actual real life Marx Brothers. And I think it's important really to, to note the passing of somebody who appreciated and, and contributed to their legacy. Um, Flywheel, Shyster and Flywheel, as I've, as I've mentioned uh, before, um, the BBC version was how I really first got into the Marx Brothers. I was very familiar with that show before I was familiar with the vast majority of their films. Um, so yeah, it, it, Vincent was a part of that, and you know I'm, I'm very grateful for that. Um, so thanks for listening to me. Um, take care, and thank you for uh, continuing with the podcast. It, it's a it's a welcome distraction. Bye. Yes, I, and I, I'm utterly ashamed to say that I that I I did have to uh, I did have to IMDb him, but yes, um, it, it is most definitely uh, he is most definitely one of one of those people that that does uh, that does appear in in uh, all all kinds of interesting places over here. Um, which one one of the things which uh, um, Andrew didn't mention was was Bob the Builder. He yeah. is the voice of Farmer Pickles, <laughs> um, so so probably uh, more familiar to uh, to the younger generation than anybody else associated with the Marx Brothers. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, a, a, a lovely tribute to uh, to uh, you know a significant name and and how important it is to to keep track of these names and to and to remember them. Yeah, and for those looking for uh, the. Uh performance that Andrew talks about. The Flywheel radio show is available all over the place. Uh, I got it on Audible. And Andrew, of course, uh, a, a former uh, guest of the podcast. And if uh, any of you by any chance don't know, uh, his book, Marks and Remarks, uh, which uh, you may have to, to go looking for. It's not, it's not as uh, easily obtainable these days, sadly, as once it was, is uh, an absolutely fascinating history of Flywheel, Shyster and Flywheel in all its forms, mm. beginning with the original uh, the original radio uh, broadcast with Groucho and Chico, and then it moves on to some absolutely fascinating behind-the-scenes information on the BBC revival, which was Andrew's, uh, uh, Andrew's gateway to the Marx Brothers. So, uh, so uh, yeah, do look out for it, Marx and Remarks by Andrew T. Smith, published by Bear Manor. Uh, well, we always like to keep our Andrews together on this podcast, so we go now to Andrew Gilmore, who lives in Philadelphia, but I don't know how many pair of pants he has. <laughs> Hello, Matthew and Bob and Noah. This is Andrew Gilmore from Philadelphia. Uh, I guess you guys all know me from the council by now. And uh, I tried to think of a question or something interesting to submit to this, but uh, I couldn't come up with anything, uh, anything unusual. So uh, really, I just wanted to send in a message and say hello and just thank you guys for doing a podcast this month because uh, 
I think we all need some distraction and uh, some relief with everything that's happening in the world right now. So I'm glad you guys are continuing to do the podcast and uh, give us something uh, something else to think about. And I think it's good to uh, just listen to you guys talk about the Marx Brothers for an hour or so and have something to make us laugh and something to make us happy. So thank you for doing that, and uh, I hope you guys are all healthy and safe and uh, will stay that way. Thank you, and I hope you're all well, and I hope all the council members listening to this are uh, doing well. And uh, that's all I wanted to say, so thank you. Hello, members of the Marx Brothers Council. My name is Josh Chambers, and this is... Carson. And we are from Kutztown, Pennsylvania. Uh, I really love your show, and we saw your message about sharing stories, so we thought we would share one. Um, When I was a little boy, my dad would tape the Marx Brothers off of our uh, local UHF channel, it was either 17 or 29 out of Philadelphia. And I probably watched Horse Feathers, oh, I can't tell you how many times. The, the tape probably wore through. Um, it was also one of the first things that I put a tape recorder in front of because I wanted to record Groucho's voice. Um, but enough about me, it, you know, lifelong fan of the, of the brothers. Uh, I thought Carson should tell a story. So Carson, would you like to tell members of the podcast who is your favorite Marx brother, and what movie uh, do you like the most? Harpo and uh, Animal Crackers. Ah. Why do you like Animal Crackers? Because they steal the painting. They steal the painting? And also, Harpo does this. <laughs> what, what, what are you doing? He lullabies the fish. <laughs> and, and I like that. Okay, that was Carson Chambers, and again, this is Josh Chambers, and we thank you so much for the podcast, and I think this is a really great opportunity um, for fans of the brothers to you know reach out and to reach out to you. So thanks again, and uh, looking forward to the next new episode. Uh, that was nice. Anybody exposing their children to the Marx Brothers gets the Good Parenting Award from the Marx Brothers Council. Absolutely, yes. Uh, and thanks for uh, participating, Carson. Mm-hmm. Well, now we'll have a little entertainment. Very little. (laughs) John Harkins will favor us at the Keys. It's Grace Wagner from Freeport, Illinois. I discovered your podcast about the same time self-quarantine began. More about myself. I've been a fan of the Marsh Brothers since I was a kid. It was due to my love of Broadway musicals. My parents picked up the cheap original Broadway cast album of Minnie's Boys, and I grew up listening to and singing along to the songs. Years later, I bought an, an original copy of Kyle Crichton's book. And now I have a total of seven books on Marxology now.
my questions are this. Um, given that they were a vaudeville act starting in their preteens, and part of their promoting themselves was getting their faces on sheet music, would you expect that the Nightingales, mascots, fun in high school skits even, they skits were even recorded, would have been on cylinders in 78s? Any evidence that these exist if not sung by them? Who? Could you do a podcast episode on the two Marx Brothers musicals, Minnie's Boys and A Night in Hollywood, A Day in the Ukraine? Or, well, I think I reverse it, Willy Wonka. A, a Day in Hollywood, A Night in the Ukraine. Yeah. About the time I finished reading Crichton's book for the second time, I started looking around the public library for more Marxology. I mean, this was back when I was a kid. I found this really cool book, which was one big Groucho interview. Uh, rare pictures, but there was sexist swearing throughout it. Um, Maxine mentions it in the prologue of Growing Up with Chico and how Groucho sued the author. Um, what's the name of that book again? I don't remember. Thanks. Uh, well, thank you, Grace, for those questions. Uh, all good ones. To the question of recordings of early material, uh, a lot of that early material from the Nightingales and Vaudeville era uh, was recorded, though, of course, not by the Marx Brothers. But, for example, in the Nightingales period, a big song for them was Love Me and the World is Mine. Uh, that was also, of course, one of the two songs that young Harpo was able to play on the piano um, when he was accompanying silent movies. That song is, has been recorded a lot. It's really a standard. The most uh, famous recording probably is Henry Burr's from 1906. And the Nightingales did things like uh, Darling Nellie Gray, a 19th century anti-slavery song that also is very available. It was recorded by everyone from Bing Crosby to uh, other people. And... Um, and then moving through it, you know, uh, sailing away on the Henry Clay mentioned earlier. That song uh, exists uh, in early recordings. What's the matter with the mail? Which is actually, a, I think, a kind of delightful song from the Leroy Trio part of Groucho's early career. I also want to put in a word for "Hello, Mr. Stein," which is a comical, drunken number. Um, that was part of the Marx Brothers Act. Minnie bought this song, and it was in Mr. Green's reception um, and other um, early uh, incarnations of the Marx Brothers Act. This song was never commercially recorded, but the sheet music was discovered by our friend Robert Bader. And at a Marx Fest event in 2014, produced by Bader and Kathy Beale, this song was performed and... You can find that performance on YouTube. I've never is... heard Robert Bader sing. I didn't realize. <laughs> oh, he has a lovely uh. voice. <laughs> he's, he's known as Robert Sugarthroat Bader <laughs> for his uh, musical and, and uh, lyrical tones. Yeah, it's quite a find. It's a funny song. It's, um, you, you know, it's other than that one scene in Go West, you don't really think of the Marx Brothers doing a lot of alcohol-based humor. Um, but that's what it is. It did get them in trouble in certain towns, according to uh, Bader's book. And uh, yeah, we'll we'll post it on our blog. It's um, it's worth listening to, and it gives you some insight. Particularly, there is a photograph that's pretty well known from Mr. Green's reception, in which all four Marx Brothers are holding up beer steins. And uh, we now know, thanks to um, Bader's research, that uh, 
Hello, Mr. Stein is, is being performed in that photo. Hmm. So yes, a lot of that Nightingales and, and after the Nightingales material is out there on record. Hmm. Uh, Minnie's Boys and, uh, Night in the Ukraine, uh, that's a great idea for an episode. And I'm sure we will talk about those works at some point. Actually, Arthur Marks just talked about the writing of Minnie's Boys in the Jay Hopkins interview, uh, in our previous episode. Absolutely. Yeah, that's right. I would, I like the idea of doing an episode that deals with, you know, the business of recreating the Marx Brothers on stage. It's obviously close to my heart and uh, the hearts of many in the council. Have either of you guys seen either of these shows? I, I haven't. Nuts. I've never seen them live on stage. I know the uh, scores of both of them pretty well, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I've, I've read both of them. No, I've actually never seen a production of either. I think uh, Night in the Ukraine is a very well-written Excellent Marx Brothers pastiche. Um, I think it's one of the, one of the more successful attempts to write for the Marx Brothers in the post Marx Brothers mm-hmm. era. I would echo that certainly. Yes. And, and I've never seen either of them on stage, but I am familiar with the, the BBC radio version of Ukraine, which is, which is indeed, uh, yeah. a, a treat. Um, I am, I am in, uh, occasional contact with Frank Lazarus one of the people who uh, was responsible for that. So I, I really must uh, get in touch with him again and find out if, uh, as I strongly doubt, uh, he is able technologically to, uh, to to visit us here on the podcast. If he is, then that would uh, would most definitely be a, a, a superb topic for, for a future podcast. Um, the final question about the, uh, the book with the swearing in it was, uh, is the Marx Brothers scrapbook, which was put together by Richard Anoboli, who is the man, uh, who is responsible for a book you do have, which is Why a Duck. Uh, that, that guy, Richard J. Anoboli, is the man who interviewed Groucho in the notorious Marx Brothers scrapbook. And we hope to, it's a pipe dream perhaps, but we hope to have Richard on the show someday too discuss his work that's why we haven't really focused on any of the his books yet because we're hoping to get him uh not sure it's going to happen but uh, we could always dream and now here is frank venus with a question for the hosts sure thought venice i let me check i, I think he <laughs> i think he says venus in his uh but i'm gonna find out i thought he said venice because it reminded me of oh you're right <laughs> venice <laughs> Oh, good thing, I, good thing I didn't trust myself. Okay. <laughs> you know, and when Groucho sings, oh, how that woman could cook, with the table between us, she looked exactly like Venice. Uh, and now here is Frank Venice with a question for the hosts. Hi, this is Frank Venice. I wonder if there are any particular actors or actresses that you would like to have seen work with the Marx Brothers. Maybe an actress that could have done something interesting in place of Margaret Dumont or uh, a movie star from that era that would have been a good foil for them, a good a good bad guy, maybe. Um, just someone that you would have liked to see them work with and, you know, in, in a particular role from a particular uh, Marx Brothers movie. Uh, that's a good question because I think a lot of us have thought about this over the years. You know, it's tough to be in a film with the Marxists because – you would be at your best if you're basically just setting them up and reacting. You know, you really don't want people to do more than that. And so it's hard to imagine any high profile actor or comedian, uh, um, 
you know, sharing the spotlight, sharing the stage with them. But I've always thought like Lionel Barrymore or Margaret Hamilton might have been nice foils for them. Oh, Margaret Hamilton. That would have been fun. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of those questions where there's, there's two, two ways of going with it, I guess. One is the, you know, the pipe dream or what would it be like if they were with, you know, Spencer Tracy or Edward G. Robinson or something. But, but more realistically, um, I do, uh, I do love the whole world of Paramount in the late twenties and early thirties. Um, and it would be nice if they intermingled a, a little more than they do with the, with the Paramount kind of repertory company. It would be lovely to see them with, uh, with the, the, the comic actor Harry Green. Um, Helen Kane was there, who they'd of course worked with on stage. Mm-hmm. She would have been, I, I think, a, a delightful match for them on film. Um, um, there's also, um, it strikes me almost every other film that you see from the pre-code era has a character in it that in the Marx Brothers movies disappears after Harvey Yates, which is the, the lounge lizard, the, uh, the parasitic mm-hmm. male, uh, lover. Um, uh, and there's one actor in particular who's almost completely forgotten now called Monroe Owsley. I don't think he was signed to any studio because he appears all over the place in the early 30s, but including a Paramount, who is the ultimate lounge lizard. I, I, I love watching him. He's an oily, uh, repulsive <laughs> character, incredibly stylish, uh, you know, beautifully uh, uh, turned out, but, but, but always uh, dreadful. Uh, it would be great to see him uh, with them. But most of all, Helen Kane. I, I, it occurred to me, uh, I would love to have seen Groucho, um, playing off of Sydney Green Street. But, you know, in looking at this question, I realized that so many of the performers who are contemporaries of the Marx Brothers who stand out for me stand out because they are broad comic characterizations, which mostly would make them poor matches for the Marx Brothers. Um, and as interesting as it might be to, see them uh, team up, as Matthew puts it, with uh, Mae West, for example, it probably would have been too much of a good thing. Which leads us into our next question. Uh, Speaking of comedians, though, there is certainly one who had a successful pairing with the brothers, and Christopher Johnson asks us about that. You know who I thought was cute? Thelma Todd. And in my crumbling Marx Brothers scrapbook... You can see it's falling apart. That's what Groucho says. And I also say that. Hello, this is my uh, COVID beard. So forgive me for not shaving for this video. But yeah, I'd like to hear your guys' take on Thelma Todd. And obviously nobody denies uh, Dumont's influence and uh, you know everything that she brought to the table. But I'd like to hear your guys' thoughts on Thelma Todd. She was beautiful, and uh, I'm a big favorite of hers. And uh, anyway, just want to hear your thoughts on her. Thank you very much. Bye. Well, I think we're all fans of Thelma Todd, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's a shame. I I guess I would have loved to have seen her and Maggie in the same film together to see how they might have interacted or how Grouch, you know, she could have been um, Flo in A Day at the Races. Or something, right. you know, it would have been interesting to see them play off each other. She certainly could have been Flo, and she also yeah. could have been um, Mrs. Whitehead in Animal Crackers. 
Um, I, I, obviously, I think she's absolutely fabulous. I, I, I adore her. Um, I think it does come back though to that point that, that Noah made just a moment ago. And, and, uh, I sort of came within a whisker of making, which is that in a way you, you, you do have too much of a good thing with, with somebody with a very strong identity of their own coming up against the Marx brothers. I think she's absolutely fabulous in, in uh, monkey business. And I think she's absolutely fabulous in horse feathers, but what you're, what you're getting there is only a, a tiny, tiny sample of what she can do. If you look at her, particularly in, in the short films that she made with, uh, firstly with Zazu Pitts and, and then with Patsy Kelly, you see a, an enormous range, uh, from broadest slapstick to, to very subtle, uh, character comedy. Um, she, she really was a, a, a significant talent and, um, there's never going to be room for much of that mm-hmm. from anyone in a Marx Brothers film other than the Marx Brothers. So I, you know, I'm delighted she's there. Uh, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't remove her for the world. Uh, but, but, but ultimately, um, a Marx Brothers film is, is going to be about the Marx Brothers. I think it's a real tribute to her that even in Monkey Business and Horse Feathers, using, as you point out, Matthew, only some of the many tools in her toolkit, uh, she's so memorable that we, we think of her as part of this ensemble almost at the same level as Margaret Dumont, even though she only made two pictures with them. Also, uh, I agree, of course, that she's a powerhouse and a, a, a great comedy star in her own right. Um, we all know the sort of uh, tragedy of her premature demise. Uh, she wasn't even 30 years old yet. And uh, to think of uh, what she might have gone on to do with or without the Marx Brothers. Well, I'll just add then, um, a very good dramatic actress too. I mean, I know there's a, there's a lot of... Uh, kind of sport made of the fact that uh, she she had to be renamed I forgot what it was was it Alison Lloyd Alison something in the film Corsair because she was taking a um, a dramatic uh, dramatic role but um, she is she is a she is a good dramatic actress also uh, so yeah a very very uh, sad loss beyond the, the the you know the obvious fact that all all such losses are sad a sad loss for for, for posterity also Greetings, Noah, Bob, Matthew, et al. This is Bill Abelson speaking from Seattle. So I've turned on to the Marx Brothers in February 1972 in Aix-en-Provence, France, at Cinema Studio 24. And what they screened was La Soupe au Canard, Duck Soup. I instantly fell in love. I was 14. The next month, Cinema Studio 24 showed At the Circus, Un Jour au Cirque. And that was certainly not enough to make me fall out of love with the Marxes at all. But I saw At the Circus again last night. I've seen it only a few other times over the years, and it is just not good, as we all know. So my question is this. Once At the Circus was clearly, it must have been a huge drop-off in the box office after opera and races, and obviously a huge artistic decline as well. After that fiasco... Didn't the Marx Brothers, or at least Groucho, put their feet down and say, we are not moving forward with another film until we get our original great writers back, Kaufman and Riskind, or, you know, Calmer and Ruby, you know, Perlman, any or all of those guys. 
Why did they proceed? You know, especially after Go West was more of the same. Now, the big story, they did get Nat Perrin back, but that was it. And then a night in Casablanca where they had carte blanche. Could they have asked for demanded, insisted on one of their, some of their old great writers for that production? Any of these? Did any of that happen? Was there any thought of it happening? Did Groucho at least try to get that going on? Well, that's my question. The council is awesome. Uh, I spent an inordinate amount of time thinking about the Marx's decline. <laughs> I should be in therapy for that alone. So I hope you can answer it or shed some light or speculate. Anyway, uh, have a beautiful day and hail Caesar. Uh, well, thank you, Bill. What do you think, guys? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, it always comes up on the council. Everything is just so clear in hindsight. You know, why did the Marxists make moves that this seems so obvious to us, you know, that, but, uh, you know, there's some things that we have to consider. First of all, the critics and the public were very glad to have them back. The real Marx is back after uh, room service. Uh, you know, the box office wasn't bad. And the critics were, let's, say, let's just say they were charitable. They didn't think it was one of their classics, but you really didn't see many uh, critics rip it. They were glad to have them back, the real Marxists. And another thing to consider is the fact that uh, At the Circus was rushed into production and they skipped the road tour. And whatever faults the film had, the Marxists seemed to think that that was the result, that was the cause, and that the next film would have a road tour and everything would be fine, everything would be corrected. And as we all know, the road tour for Go West did not result in a film that was uh, any better. So maybe the road tour in itself wasn't the cure-all that everybody thought it was. And finally, to be honest, the Marxists really didn't seem that vested emotionally uh, in their films, in their later MGM films. They were just there for the payday, as Matthew has written and talked about in the past. Um, you know, it really wasn't until a Nine Casablanca that they actually seemed to have any interest in who was uh, putting their films together. Um, even their supposed farewell film, The Big Store, they just seemed to go along for the MGM ride. Yeah, I don't think the brothers had as clear-eyed a view as as we all do in retrospect about exactly what was wrong with those films. They were more inclined to see their earlier films as being primitive works that they had transcended. Uh, and it's always a little bit hard to remember. I'm always reminding myself when I'm reading about them that they did not think of themselves as artists in the, the way we do now, the way we think of um, the integrity of artists. They were really working guys. Show business was their profession. Um, they would have been, I think, quite happy to um, abandon what we see as the uh, mandates of pure Marxism in order to, you know, have a continued successful career. Yeah. Um, also, let's not forget, there was a Kalmar and Ruby script for Go West, which... Groucho himself disparaged. So I don't know that they saw so clearly that they had had better writers before. Yes, and specifically uh, in answer to the question, why didn't Groucho in particular fight for better writers? I, I think unfortunately the answer is, uh, as we've said before, that he, he had stopped caring at that point. He he really wasn't that concerned about the uh, the team's films. It was a low priority for him. It was something that he half resented having to keep doing. And um, I think he was much more interested in, in the quality of the production um, than he was in, in the script at that point. 
um, as to uh, later on, what about with the night in Casablanca? I think um, that they did on that occasion uh, get the best writers in their opinion that they could find. But in that, by that point, these were uh, top flight radio writers, which is which is what they did get. I think possibly in the late forties, the idea of going back to to the guys that were writing for them in the in the late 20s and early 30s would have seemed um something that they wouldn't have even considered probably they wanted the latest crackerjack radio writers and I, and they did get a, a few of those in uh but certainly yes it, at, around the time about the circus go west big store um i, I think Groucho just didn't care it's also worth noting that Irving Brecker who we somewhat malign because the the screenplays for Go West and At the Circus, which are mostly his work, are so disappointing. But he was a deservedly well-regarded radio writer and wit and gag man. He was a very capable comedy writer. Um, it's just that, um, as Joe Adamson touches on in his book, for any one person to come up with a Marx Brothers script is is maybe an impossibly tall order. Um, if you're a sort of, you know, great genius like George Kaufman, you might have a better chance. But it's not so much that Brecker wasn't a good writer. Exactly. Yes. I mean, it, the, the Marx Brothers were far from alone in having this problem. I mean, Laurel and Hardy, for instance, were having exactly the same problem at exactly the same time. It wasn't that there was nobody out there who, who could write jokes. Irving Brecker could write exceptionally good jokes. The point was that these were uh, comic personae that were very, very subtle. And the difference between uh, great material and, and bad material was, you know, uh, tissue paper thin. Uh, and you had to really be steeped in them and you had to really love them to get it to, 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 to even care about getting it just right. And there was just nobody around in the forties who cared about getting it just right. What they, what they were doing was good enough. And as I said before, this was done without the benefit of a road tour. So perhaps the legend of how much the road tours helped them is a bit overblown. Um, It might've helped them refine and perfect stuff, but it certainly didn't make a bad film good. There's an English expression. You can't polish a turd. (laughs) <laughs> I hope it's just an expression. <laughs> uh, we say that in New York, too. <laughs> but yeah, it's very revealing that even, you know, in the MGM period, um, it remains true. The best script by far is the one that Kaufman and Riskin worked on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and here is a submission from Paul Scrabo with some thoughts on Carnegie Hall and more on the later films. Hello, and thank you for allowing me to be a part of your special presentation. The closest I've gotten in my life to actually seeing Groucho Marx in person was when we were waiting for him in 1973 and that infamous occasion where he was almost murdered when he was going through the crowds uh, at the premiere of Animal Crackers in New York City. Uh, I have a little bit of, I shot a little bit of dingy Super 8 footage of him. You can barely see him. Uh, Also, I was not able to get tickets to that New York Carnegie Hall event, but a friend of mine went for that show, and he says that they were supposed to show 
I believe, the stateroom scene during that presentation. But the film wasn't working or the projector wasn't working or whatever. And so when they lowered the lights, people started to giggle because nothing was happening. And Rich says, my friend Rich says, you could hear Groucho say, are we going to see the film? You know, interesting. And the other thing is when he did that bit, when he goes, I want to take this violin and break it over my knee and jump on it. I don't like Jack Benny. My friend thought that Groucho was going to keel over or tilt because he looked so frail when he was bashing into that violin. So uh, quickly, I was watching Go West uh, again. And well, first of all, both At the Circus and Go West do have very good finales, don't they? I mean, they may not be Marx Brothers type of finales, but they're pretty good endings on both films. I think Go West seems to have the brothers appear together in more scenes. Do you think that's accurate? There doesn't seem to be that many moments where they're not on screen, as opposed to, I, I think, uh, at the circus. And what's interesting is the, the opening of Groucho with his brothers, you know, $9 change, please. You know, it's not that funny, perhaps, but it moves very quickly. But what helps is that you accept it because Groucho's not showing his awful toupee. He's wearing that hat. So he looks like Groucho, you know? And the, we the weirdest thing about both those films is Groucho's toupee. It's off-putting. Who made that decision uh, for that? I don't know. At least in the big store, he's Groucho again, you know? So anyway, I guess that's about it. Thank you so much. I, I'm not completely accepting of the premise here because I think although the toupee is surely horrid, um, I could live with the toupee if Groucho's performance were more his usual. I think it's the one-two punch of Groucho's, um, manic and excessively cute performance in these two films mm -hmm. along with the change to his look. But if I could lose either the toupee or the new style of his his line readings um i'd keep the toupee and as far as who's to blame while we don't have any solid proof all the evidence does seem to point to bazell right yeah bazell certainly for the the performing style yes but uh but obviously the 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 toupee would have come from you know from from somewhere else from the front office uh i just it's almost impossible to imagine why anybody would think, you know, somebody with a, I know we say this all the time, but a guy with a painted on mustache, you know, right. this, this utterly unrealistic comic figure. Um, I, I, it almost defies any attempt to make sense of it. I suppose it was purely to make him look younger. Uh, rather than to, to, you know, to, to, to make him look less, uh, grotesque or comic in any way. Um, it was, it was maybe just some paranoid effort to, uh, to take a few years off him. Obviously it, it, it does the opposite, but, but the, you know, the, the utterly tone deaf thing about it is that it's, it, it is, it is opposed to his character. That's the thing that would never have occurred to them in a million years to worry about. And that's our problem. Yeah. And then, you know, as, as I'm sure we've said before on this program, the final layer is it, it just doesn't have to be that bad. <laughs> Humphrey Bogart had one. Bud Abbott had one. Um, you know, they look like hair most of the time. 
so it is a very strange touch and it is and it does kind of crystallize the whole the whole thing of his this strange new performing style he's adopted um uh, one almost wonders if if it sort of inspired it in a way mm-hmm. the way that 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 uh, you know certain actors will have a you know a, a prop or a bit of costume or something that they use you know n- not not in a highfalutin way but perhaps you know almost almost subliminally if he if he just felt a bit sprontier you know um uh, and did this strange performance but yeah it's of a piece with but as you say separate you know at the same time distinct from uh the wider problem i'm not disagreeing with this premise that it was done for vanity reasons uh it's probably true but couldn't you also have said that about why chico started wearing a hairpiece uh in the late 20s Uh, except his isn't realistic is it i don't think you would ever think it was real hair um i don't know maybe because he always had it i I, it's a good point i mean it's possible that marx brothers fans at the time had some kind of reaction to the fact that chico was wearing a piece now but i think for groucho at that late date in their film career Mm -hmm. because it was so different from what had come before um, it must have, you know, it maybe rocked the boat a little bit more if it did. Although I yeah. do realize when we talk about this, I agree with everything you're saying about it, Matthew. But this is a measure of how important the Marx Brothers are to you, uh, you know, and how devoted you are to to them. Because to a lot of people, it would seem so silly that a guy with a painted on mustache and eyebrows, and it, it seems so disturbingly wrong to us that he's wearing a very unconvincing toupee. (laughs) I know why. It makes perfect sense. It's perfectly airtight argument, but uh, to to a casual observer, it would be funny. He should have have just painted on the hair. He should have had grease paint hair. But but I think it is very... um, I think it is telling that it changes in the big store. If it, if it, if it had gone by a night in Casablanca, we'd say, oh, of course, fine. You know, it's, that's all long gone and forgotten about. Uh, but the fact that it goes the year after Go West, after two yeah. outings, uh, that does suggest that somebody said this is not a good idea. Yeah. And I guess that's another, um, uh- arrow pointing at Bazell because Louis B. Mayer was just as involved in the big store, right? Yeah. Yeah. Hi, my name is Jerry Shario. I want to thank you all for the uh, podcasts. They have been a real help during these isolation times. I've been going back and re-listening to many of the earlier ones. Lots of good information and more importantly, presented in a very entertaining way. A suggestion I would like to make for a future podcast. I really enjoy it when you guys take a film and spend the entire podcast uh, going into detail about it. I would like to suggest Go West. I know one third of you probably would uh, argue the point, but you guys have dropped interesting tidbits of information through the year about... um, earlier drafts and concepts of the film. I would love to have all of that presented in one place. Thank you all very much. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Jerry. Um, I'm sure we will do a Go West episode. Eventually, we're going to devote single episodes to each of the films, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. We're, we're jumping around. We're going. We're doing late films, early films. We're going in no particular order. Good films, bad films. We want to jump around. We're going to get to all of them and 
Obviously, it's a legend that I'm not a big fan of Go West, but I absolutely love to talk about it. It's actually more fun for me to talk about than something like Horse Feathers, where all you could say is, oh, that's great, that's great, that's great. With Go West, you know, you really could uh, dissect it. You could say, that's terrible, that's terrible, that's terrible. And you could, you know, try and dissect exactly (laughs) what went wrong and why it went wrong and how it could have been fixed. You know, to me, that's a much more interesting film to discuss. But I would certainly, as well, endorse the uh, the idea that that, that uh, a bad film is every bit as interesting, if not more, uh, in terms of the behind the scenes stories of how it came about, uh, what it was like making it. You know, the the, the ground has been plowed, you know, to, to to the bedrock on on Night at the Opera or, or Duck Soup, uh, to some extent, anyway. Uh, but there's there's always something interesting, I think, about about the lesser films. Uh, certainly, I think um, in in, uh, my, in my book, the annotated Marx Brothers, the chapters on Room Service and Love Happy, by far are the two that I I find the most interesting to 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 look over again. Um, so yes, unquestionably, so. Um, I, I'd much rather read about uh, the making of Jaws 2 than I would Jaws. <laughs> yeah, since there's a limited number of Marx Brothers films, we've been uh, trying to space out the single film discussions so we don't run out of them too quickly. Um, and we're, we're also going to devote episodes to some of the peripheral filmography, like we talked about uh, Copacabana uh, in a recent episode. Uh, don't worry, we'll get to go west. We're just afraid after we do that, no one will listen to our future episodes. <laughs> uh, well, next on this vaudeville bill today, we have, um, we have the fabulous Carmela Hazlett appearing as her alter ego, Roxy Tyler. Oh, hi, Marx Brothers Council and McCormick. Hunga dunga, hunga dunga, hunga dunga, and McCormick. This is Roxy Tyler here from Roxy Tyler's Carnival of Horrors and House of Horrors. Big fan of the Marx Brothers Council. I'm like, actually kind of sort of part of it. Hi. Um, I hope you guys are all doing well. And you're all staying healthy. And not letting anybody's germs get you sick. Let's start letter writing campaign on Netflix, because while we're all stuck in the house, I think they should be streaming all the Marx Brothers movies on Netflix. Or at least the first five. Stay safe out there. This is Roxy Tyler from Philadelphia signing out. Be safe. All right, Roxy. Yeah, it would be great if all the Marx films were available for streaming on Netflix or Hulu or whatever. But, um... I guess if you want to pay uh, to buy or rent them, you could see Duck Soup, and I believe all the MGMs are available through uh, iTunes or Amazon. But if you just want to stream one and watch one uh, and not really pay anything, I think the only one you could see is A Night in Casablanca, which is being carried by Shout Factory TV. You could see it on their website or on their app or um, on a Roku channel. Yeah, the Shout Factory carries a, a good portion of the Marx Brothers TV collection, DVD set that they've released. They carry that on their streaming service. Uh, they have a bunch of this TV appearances, including The Incredible Jewel Robbery. So if you want to see that, uh, look for that. But uh, like I said, the only film you're really going to be able to find on a, a streaming service and not have to pay anything is uh, Night in Casablanca, which isn't a bad one if there was only one available. Yeah. And as I keep reminding people, if you want to see Night at the Opera or A Day at the Races in high definition, the only places you could do that is to purchase a digital version on 
iTunes or Amazon uh, video. There, it's not available. Neither one of the films is available on Blu-ray. So if you want to see high definition, this is the only way to do it. And if you see them in high definition, the race, the horse race, is far more suspenseful. <laughs> Hi-hat definition. Coming up next is a contribution from our friend Scott Alexander. Some may know him because of his many wonderful award-winning screenplays co-written with his collaborator, Larry Karaszewski. But he's probably best known as the guest on episode 12 uh, of the Marx Brothers Council podcast. <laughs> he's done stuff besides that? Hi, this is Scott Alexander, and I just want to say how much fun it is to be part of this group, this Marx Brothers Cuckoo group. Uh, brings a lot of joy to my life. I know I'm supposed to be asking a question, but this is this is just a statement. The camaraderie, the friends on the site, the fighting over the trivia. I mean, obviously Harpo was one of the four voices in the Kippert Herring Barrels. I mean, and anyone who disagrees with me is a fool. Uh, but I enjoy the, the pleasure I get out of this little group every day when I log on. So see you guys. So if you're wondering why Scott Alexander isn't writing screenplays at the rate you might like him to, it's because he's wasting all his time at the Marx Brothers Council. <laughs> yeah, thanks for those uh, kind words, Scott. Uh, by the way, uh, speaking of Netflix, which we were uh, previously, you guys should check out, everyone should check out his uh, his new hit film, uh, uh, Dolomite is my name, which he uh, co-wrote. And, uh, you could actually catch Scott also on the premiere episode of another podcast that you should listen to when you're done with this one. And that's called The Movies That Made Me. And, uh, he's the guest on the premiere episode where he talks about his influences and so forth. So check that out. Yeah. And it's terrific. He talks about the Marx Brothers. I'm also realizing now we should have said, uh, a while back, uh, that Cinco Paul and his collaborator, Candario, also have a delightful podcast. Oh, I've yeah. been listening to it lately. Make him watch this in which they make each other watch films that they haven't seen. Um, it's great. Um, I recommend, uh, make him watch this. And one of the early episodes, Cinco does make him watch a, a Mark's film. Yeah. Horse feathers. Yeah. Now we're going to hear from Mr. David Petrusha. My list of uh, books to read has uh, just gotten longer with David's contribution. I realize I have not read any of his books, though he has written about more than one subject that interests me. Uh, here he is, David Petrusha. Hello, my name is David Petrusha. I'm the author of oh, a number of books on uh, presidential history and elections. But long before I started doing that, I was a Marx Brothers fan as a little kid. And where does it, where does it begin? I think it began for me, uh, with You Bet Your Life. I mean, it was on every Thursday night and it was on even on the radio on what was left of NBC radio. And so it was a tremendous influence on me. I remember going into a diner. Uh, with my mother, uh, and the guy behind the counter would always call me Groucho. I think I had a bit of an attitude even then. Uh, it wasn't just my quick wit that was being, uh, uh, alluded to, shall we say. And then, of course, all the films, all the great films, the Paramount films, which kind of took you back to a world which was just beyond, oh, anything that you knew anymore. And uh, they were great. All the other films were sometimes great. 
And um, uh, one of the first books I ever bought was the paperback edition of Groucho and Me, um, which um, I soon followed up with, with the hardcover edition, which I think cost six bucks. And I had to special order it of Harpo Speaks, which was even better and which introduced me to more so to the world of the 1920s, the Algonquin Round Table, all of those people. Um, and a shout out. I usually don't say the word shout out. It's too modern. Uh, but a shout out to Noah uh, and to all the folks who put uh, I'll Say She Is together. I, I had the opportunity to see that during its run. And that was a great experience. Some people say I, I write funny stuff, funny history. Ha uh-huh. ha. Uh, but if I do, I think it traces back to my love of comedy and the spoken word and the Marx Brothers. And so to Groucho, Harpo, Chico, and sometimes Zeppo, you know, thank you for a real lifetime of enjoyment. You know, you go through life and you change your thoughts on many things. And you say, what was I thinking Or it was a youthful indiscretion. But with the Marx Brothers, no. I've stayed faithful to them, and and they've stayed faithful to me. So thank you all. And thank you for this great uh, podcast, which I enjoy so much. Bye. Hello, Marx Brothers Council, and greetings from New York City, a city of 8.5 million people, all at the moment trying to stay six feet apart from one another. My name is Gary Hardcastle, and I uh, well, I come to the Marx Brothers from well uh, from a love of the Marx Brothers, of course, but also from a certain fascination with vaudeville. So Robert Bader's "For the Three Musketeers" um, is like manna from heaven to me, and I've been thinking uh, particularly about the story of Clara Parnon. She's the 19 year old uh, who uh, either led or was taken from Fort Wayne, Indiana, by Leonard uh, in 1912 a week before she was to be married with her brother and her fiance in pursuit. Uh, it's, it's a hell of a story. And Bader's research suggests that, you know, every paper in the Midwest covered it in uh, as it was happening. And I'm wondering if anyone else has researched or written about this little episode. I know there are, you know, no end of stories of Chico's womanizing. Uh, but is this the, the only time that the woman actually went with him that, that, you know, uh, that this actually happened. Full disclosure, I uh, I work in audio storytelling and I cannot stop thinking about this story. I've told it to folks, uh, read it to my wife. And uh, so I'm thinking this might be a fun story to tell in some, some new fashion. I'd love to hear your comments and uh, take care. And I hope you guys are all happy, safe, and well. Thank you for that, Gary. Yes, the Clara Parnon story um, I encountered first in the Robert Bader book, and I, I certainly don't have anything more on this than than Bader offers. Yeah, it's, oh, that's yeah, that's really the, one of the highlights of the book. Everybody should check it out. I believe this story's on at least on the edition I have. It's on pages one twenty nine through one thirty one of, of four of the three Musketeers. So everybody check out the book and check out that story in particular. And it certainly would be a great part of a biopic on Chico or the Marxists. I mean, it, it, it writes itself. It's beautiful. And yeah, if you're, you're quarantined, you've got more time on your hands than usual. Uh, it's a perfect opportunity to make your way through four of the three Musketeers. Uh, if you've uh, only read it once, 
you've barely read it. There's so much to uh, digest in that book. Um, What I find particularly interesting here is that Chico has gained fame for his womanizing even before the Marx Brothers are famous. This isn't just uh, some uh, celebrity gone wild. This is a guy gone wild. Yeah, it's a classic case of Chico needing the honey. (laughs) Coming up next, we've got uh, contributions from Mark Buttick. I'm taking my best guess on the pronunciation of your last name. And Brad Solo, a slightly more confident guess. Yeah, Brad's probably the only uh, council member to have a Star Wars film named after him. I believe that's true. Well, uh, there is also uh, Andrew Chewbacca. (laughs) Hey, Bob, Matt, and Noah. Noah, hope you and the missus are feeling better. And, I mean, I'm 43. I've been watching the Marx Brothers probably for about 30 years and it's something that was uh, passed down from my family. Uh, my father was a Marx fan. Uh, my brothers, who are younger than I am, are Marx fans. Um, to this day, one of us could text another a line from a Marx Brothers movie, and usually within 30 seconds, we will have the correct reply. Uh, my youngest brother, when he was a senior in high school, um, he hosted a, a school's talent show, and he had a female co-host, and... He basically made her his Margaret Dumont for the night, asking her to take a card from his deck, asking uh, if she rumbled and, and things like that. So, you know, as we are all kind of in the shelter in place, as we are kind of locked down, um, you know, just kind of seeing the Marxes, um, thinking of a line, you know, putting on a clip from either YouTube or, or throwing on a movie um, has just been really, really helpful. And, you know, getting getting through this, I guess. Uh, you know, it's not something that uh, any of us are accustomed to, um, but the Marxes, you know, do, do, you know, still to this day play an important role in my life. Because I'm sure if I were to send something to my brothers right now, they would, they would have that response. And that's the kind of, uh, lasting impact that they have on us. Um, but I'm a big fan of the podcast. So thank you guys for letting us kind of make a little contribution to the good work that you guys do. And uh, I did actually have a reservation for the podcast in New York City. So whenever you guys reschedule that, look forward to seeing you guys all there. And I'll talk to you soon. This is Brad Solo from Minneapolis, Minnesota, thanking the council, Matthew, Noah, Bob, and everyone else. And especially people like Frank Ferrante, who continue to post videos and help us get through this. Thanks so much, guys. Bye. Uh, thank you for that, guys, and Mark, particularly for the personal note. I am feeling much, much better and very happy to say so. Uh, coming up next, we have a personal Marx Brothers history from uh, a dear friend of mine and a very important part of my Marx Brothers story, Ms. Kathy Beal of I'll Say She Is and many other endeavors. Um, Kathy was among the guests we were going to have speak at the New York episode if we had gone ahead with it. Um, and so her contribution is a little bit of what she might have said uh, at that event. By doing this, we are, of course, forcing her to come up with all new material when we actually do our in-person New York episode. Here is the great Kathy Beal with her personal Marx history. Greetings, fellow members of the council from Kathy Beal. Noah Diamond had invited me to speak on the uh, March 21st, now scuttled, podcast at The Lambs, and there were a number of things I was considering making you guys listen to. 
uh, trust me, they're all interesting as can be, including spending an afternoon at Maxine Marx's. I will save that. Instead, I'm going to tell you how the Marx Brothers had a weird, weird effect on my life. They have actually ended up determining a portion of my career uh, and of where I live. I first became acquainted with them through Paul Zimmerman's book, The Marx Brothers at the Movies, when I was in junior high. I was on a tear reading my way through various sections of the Dewey Decimal System. I was a nut for the Algonquin wits, for silent films, for classic films. And after I read that book, uh, an Art Deco movie house had a double feature in Dallas, Texas of A Night at the Opera and A Day at the Races. So my introduction to them on the big screen was with an entirely packed audience and everyone laughing until their ribs hurt. My next experience was quite, quite different. Very soon after that, my father moved my family to Germany for his sabbatical And uh, in my first days there, I stumbled on a notice for a Marx Brothers Paramount Film Festival at the City Museum in Munich. Uh, So the first film I saw there was Duck Soup. Let's reframe that. The context is, in the center of Munich, I saw Duck Soup with an audience comprised of mostly Germans. My younger siblings caught the bug as well, and we used the Marxes as fodder for amusing ourselves when we were strangers in a land where we had the last name of the language and didn't really speak it so well ourselves. The main thing I remember this leading to is my younger sister and I writing our own version of Harpo meeting up with Gookie and Gookie discovering him making faces, which we set to the tune of Hava Nagila. I'll sing it for you in person if you ever meet me face to face. Anyway, after that, the access to their films was kind of haphazard. Let's fast forward a lot of years, more than you're going to get me to own up to. And I am walking out of an Italian restaurant on a Sunday after a restaurant review. And I run into three people who stop me and say, Would I be insulted if I were asked to impersonate Margaret Dumont? And my response was, hell no, I'd do a damn good job of it. And this led to a very strange video project called Horse Phasers, which put the Marx Brothers on the deck of the Starship Enterprise. And it actually sort of had the okay of somebody at Paramount because the producer of this Uh, ran the science fiction fantasy bookstore in Houston and also was an international James Bond collector. I think his money comes from oil fields in Oklahoma. Anyway, uh, Starbase Houston didn't think this film was funny, but I showed it at a salon in my apartment and general audiences thought it was hysterical. I decided it needed an audience. So I went online figuring there had to be a hotbed of Marx Brothers fans somewhere in this world. And in fact, it was centered at a seminal website called whyaduck.com. I filled out the form to, be, to join the fan roster. The proprietor of the site uh, started exchanging email with me, and then we were talking on the phone, and then we were flying back and forth uh, between Queens and Houston, and I got tired of crying in airports, and so I shut my life down in Houston, and I moved to Queens to live with Frank Bland, whom some of you knew. 
And this opened up a a magical and bizarre stretch of meeting people who were actual blood relations of members of my personal pantheon very early on. Miriam Marks, later through the good graces of Jay Hopkins, Maxine Marks, and that's a story that warrants its own time. The grandson of Robert Benchley, son of Nathaniel Benchley. Uh, The Russians are coming, the Russians are coming. Uh, One of my favorite authors ever. And before there was Facebook, there were internet, there were Usenet groups, there were mailing lists, and there was a Marx Brothers mailing list that was overseen by a woman in Philadelphia using a server called Panics, I think, which kind of fits. And Frank had the duck list, which was lively to the point of people basically socking themselves in the jaw all the time, or rather each other. This geographic repositioning threw me across the path of Kevin Fitzpatrick, whom I met when he was uh, overseeing getting Dorothy Parker's birthplace named as a National Literary Landmark, and I completely coincidentally was running the media relations for it. This all put me in the right place at the right time when Noah Diamond announced a show he was going to be doing in Brooklyn, and he and I met for the first time and had a moment much like Chico and Harpo greeting each other in A Night at the Opera when they exchanged salamis. We each had some kind of appropriate gift we gave each other and started to become friends. He and I were uh, later brought into Mark's Fest by Kevin Fitzpatrick, and through that I got to know Harpo's son, Bill, and Dick Cavett, both of which were I can die happy now moments. And all of this also led to the first staged reading of I'll Say She Is, and I got to read the uh, created part of Ruby Mintworth, and then the Fringe production, and ultimately the 2016 staged revival at the Connolly. So this uh, preteen fascination led me to relocate led to the longest relationship of my life, which, just in case you didn't know, ended with Frank's death 12 years ago, and threw me into the planning of all kinds of, and participation in all kinds of events celebrating and honoring the Marxes. Go figure. Uh, Predictably, perhaps, Kathy's testimony has aroused great curiosity about, among other things, the short film Horse Phasers, which was, I suppose, Kathy's debut as a Marx performer. Uh, Horse Phasers does exist, and it is worth a look, and we are looking into the possibility of bringing some of it to you. So stay tuned. And she also mentions this uh, Wyaducka website on the Marxes. Yeah. Though it doesn't exist anymore as a self-contained entity, its material does live on the marx-brothers.org uh, website where it has all been archived. So you can check that out and it has some great material. I really suggest checking that out. Yeah. And, you know, Frank Bland is an important figure in the uh, modern history of the Marx Brothers. Uh, even those of us who may not know his name, uh, we are all sort of benefiting from his enthusiasm for the Marx Brothers. He was a real pioneer in terms of the Marx Brothers internet community. Mm-hmm. I uh, I didn't know him personally, but I feel like I do through Kathy, and uh, I feel pretty grateful to him. Frank Bland, ladies and gentlemen, gone too soon. 
Hi there, Bob, Matthew, and Noah. This is Tom Hamill from Mansfield, Massachusetts. I want to know, have you guys ever considered trying to get Paul Wasilowski, who's the uh, well-known Marx Brothers historian, um, have you ever considered getting him to come on as a uh, podcast uh, participant? Thanks. Take care. Uh, thanks, Tom, for the question. Yeah, uh, Paul Wesolowski would be a wonderful guest. He is, as many of our listeners I'm sure know, sort of the dean of, of Marx Brothers fans and researchers. He was the publisher and editor of the seminal Fredonia Gazette. And his home in New Hope, Pennsylvania, which many of us, including, I'm glad to say, I have had the pleasure of visiting – uh, it is a sort of museum of Marx Brothers stuff. He is an incredibly advanced and dedicated collector. Uh, I've had good experiences with Paul in the past. He's always been nice to me and was very helpful with the book and supportive of I'll Say She Is. Uh, I haven't actually spoken to him in a couple of years. So <laughs> since this podcast began, uh, I haven't been in touch with him. But thanks for the reminder, Tom. I should uh, drop Paul a note and... Uh, Absolutely, he would be a great guest for any Marx Brothers conversation. Yeah, please, Paul, if you're listening, come on. Yeah, we'd love to have you. <laughs> Unless you're the person who voted for Go West as your favorite film. <laughs> he is an iconoclast. <laughs> Uh, and uh, now here's another uh, of my uh, New York area cronies, uh, Mr. Fred Velez, the delightful Fred Velez, with a another biopic-related question. Hello, boys. This is Fred Velez, bon vivant, amateur kibitzer, as well as a snappy dancer. My question is as follows, and if you can follow this, you can follow anything. Do you think a bio-movie about Harpo's exploits in Leningrad would make a fascinating play or movie? Quotes on quotes and quotes. Well, that took a lot out of me. I'm going back in hibernation. Wake me up when the uh, quarantine is over. And be sure to wash your hands. Swordfish. Uh, yes, absolutely. I think that that, that would be um, uh, an extremely interesting uh, sort of topic to, to focus on. I think increasingly uh, my feeling is that it would be nice for uh, any kind of biographical endeavor to be in a long series format rather than a movie where you're uh, rather like the Chaplin film, you know, where you, you just, you're only looking at something for a second and, and you're on to the next and you never really get any, any detail. It would be lovely. I mean, obviously this is a pipe dream because there just isn't the audience out there uh, that would want to know the Marx Brothers story in that kind of detail. But in terms of what would be best, what would work best, I mean, I did find myself watching the first series. I don't know if anybody else has seen it, um, a series called The Crown about uh, Queen Elizabeth II and, and that period of British history. And yeah. I, I, I didn't like it, actually. I thought it was pretty bad. But, but two things about it I liked very much. One was that it didn't try to kind of age up or down its cast. Once a character reached a certain age, they recast. I thought that was very impressive. Uh, but the other thing is that rather than try and tell a kind of a linear story bit by bit by bit, each episode focused on one specific theme. So, for instance, there was an entire episode about the um, the poisonous fogs in London in the 1950s with various characters that weren't in any other part of the series. Um, and I think that might just be the way to go with the Marx Brothers. Uh, mm. One obvious example being Harpo in Russia. You'd have a whole episode just about that. And you pick, 
you know, six to 12 absolutely uh, interesting, dramatic chunks of their lives and devote an entire episode to each one. I think that would be the way to go. Well, there was a BBC radio show done about uh, Harpo and Winograd, I found about 15 years ago. And actually, with a little searching on the internet, you should be able to find it. I did see a link, but I'm not sure if it's really authorized, so I don't want to really give it out. But there was a radio show, Harpo and Leningrad. I think it was done in, like, 2004. So see if you can find it. I think it's an especially good idea because it's a way of telling a little bit of the Marx Brothers story, but coming at it from an unexpected kind of novel Mm -hmm. angle. And, you know, it would be about Harpo and the Marx Brothers, but it would also be about something else in a big way. One question that occurs to me, of course, a question like Fred's question here makes me think, ooh, maybe could I write that? I think very little is known about the details. And um, at least in his book, Harpo seems like he didn't even know what the contents was of the message mm-hmm. that he was asked to deliver. So there would either be a lot of room for uh, there'd be a lot of room for either research or invention. That's why it's so great because it leaves there's so many holes open for speculation and filling in the filling it in. Yeah. Hi, my name is Matthew Little, and I live in Sudagashima, Saitama, Japan. And the main thing I wanted to add to this podcast was just to say thank you to the three of you. Uh, when I began listening to the podcast last year, while we were still in the states, um, it really rekindled my love for the Marx Brothers and spurred me to get my DVDs out and share them with my 10-year-old, and she absolutely loved them. And so it's been a real source of comfort for us being able to enjoy the Marx Brothers and and kind of what was America at that time period while we were feeling homesick. But also uh, it's given us the the tools to be able to kind of thumb our noses at what we're going through now uh, and be able to talk about them in the movies. Um, And so I really appreciate you uh, making that happen. Um, I guess the only question I have is uh, during this time, uh, I read uh, about three of the books written by the children of the Marx Brothers. And I just want to know your thoughts on on them. Um, Obviously, they came from very different perspectives, and they had some of them continued some of the mythologizing, but others seemed to hew kind of closer to what was really going on. Maxine's especially seemed very much in some ways, a defense of her father. But I was curious, you know, what kind of what did you think of the uh, the books of the children of the Marx Brothers? And, and is there uh, some out there that you'd recommend higher than others? And maybe some that I hadn't really seen before. Um, but other than that, just thanks again, guys. For, for me, the the best of them is Miriam's Love Groucho, but I feel slightly bad about that answer because most of the contents of that book is Groucho's writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Miriam did a beautiful job editing and selecting those letters. And she writes brief um, introductions to some of them and, and makes editorial comments. But I, I think of all the Marx uh, children's books, that one feels the most uh, revealing and valuable to me. I also really enjoy Son of Harpo Speaks mm-hmm. by Bill Marx, uh, a very different kind of book, but a very readable, discursive, uh, conversational memoir. Um, and it's a good opportunity to get to know Bill and the remarkable guy he is, both in his connections to Harpo and the Marx Brothers, but also in his own right. He talks about his musical career, his family life. Um, it really feels like sitting down with Bill Marx mm-hmm. for a wonderful, long yeah. afternoon of conversation. And uh, uh, I really enjoy it a lot. And of course, the great lost Mark's book is uh, Susan's 
Is it a biography of Harpo or is it an autobiography for Life with Harpo, which apparently was finished uh, but has never been published and doesn't seem like it ever will be? Yeah, yeah. There there are um, published materials that have drawn from it as a source, including Robert Bader's book. But uh, yeah, f- very few have read it in its entirety. I think Les Marsden might be able to tell us a lot about it. And Raymond White uh, also uh, has has a copy, but uh, yeah, I would agree with all of that. Um, I think they're all as a, as research tools. They're all uh, invaluable. Obviously, uh, when we haven't mentioned Maxine's uh, growing up with Chico is of extraordinary value as one of the the only book uh, to give you um, a detailed portrait of of Chico himself. Uh, Bill's book I found particularly useful in its detailed descriptions of Harpo's solo stage act uh, after the Marx Brothers film career. There's some absolutely fascinating uh, information as to what that consisted of. Um, but again, uh, I, I agree wholeheartedly with Noah. Uh, if what you're looking for is uh, a good book, a good book, a good read in its own right, then, uh, yeah, Miriam's Love Groucho is the winner, hands down. I think it's one of the two or three most absorbing mm-hmm. and fascinating Marx Brothers books of all. Does anybody have any idea what happened with uh, Zeppo's two sons? They've never been interviewed or written anything, have they? I guess not. not, not. That I know. No. Yeah, that's a subject for further investigation. All I know is that they lived a stone's throw from the stage. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and now from Australia, you know it's all ripped up. Our friend Paul Hagel has a question. Ever since I was young, I've always been quoting Groucho and Marx when I'm out and about. If I see the opportunity to do it, I will do it. And I don't tell people that I'm quoting Groucho. I'm actually tricking people into thinking that I'm really clever and really witty. Like I was at a restaurant the other day and they were pouring me a drink and I said, don't put any ice in mine, it takes up too much room done that one to death and people always laugh and they say oh that's really funny oh, thank you. and I'm a fraud but is Groucho rolling in his grave uh, is that wrong or do you guys do it obviously some of them you can't do like we took photos of the native girls but they weren't developed Ooh, can't believe they did that in 1930 love your show love you guys uh, from Melbourne Australia see you later Thanks, Paul. Um, to be honest, I learned my lesson early in life to be careful who you're uh, quoting to and what circumstances, because it might not uh, come out or be perceived as intended. Uh, when I was in middle school, I had a little run-in with the lunch lady in the cafeteria, and half-jokingly, I just gave her a little <laughs> bang zoom, you know, quoting uh, Ralph Cramden from The Honeymooners. And next thing you know, I got a week of detention, uh, despite my protest explaining how it wasn't a real threat. It was just a, a quote of a, of a joking threat. Uh, they didn't seem to get it. So I've, you got to be careful who you're saying things to, because it's not going to get perceived as how, how you mean it. <laughs> I, I've become very careful about unattributed quotations. Um, but when I was younger, absolutely. And in fact, uh, Sometimes ridiculously so. I, in an, in an earnest, but obviously, um, ineffective attempt to 
connect with a girl when I was 16 years old, I actually told someone that her eyes shined like the pants of a blue serge suit. <laughs> and as, as I say in my book, uh, I, she didn't know what a blue serge suit was, and neither did I. And that was just the beginning of our problems. Uh, also in high school, I remember <laughs> the specific event that made me swear off stealing jokes under any circumstances, because I thought I could get away with anything. And I was talking to a good friend of mine, who's still a good friend of mine, Kim Mascaratolo, and we were walking to class together, and I dropped some zinger, and she laughed, and she said, that's very funny, Noah. And I said, thank you. And she said, yeah, it was even funnier last night when Bill Maher said it on television. <laughs> so she taught me a valuable lesson, and I was so embarrassed. I never wanted to feel that way again. Yeah, I, I don't think I've ever really done it, to be honest. I don't recall any incident where when I've kind of quoted Groucho in, in, in normal you know, it just in the course of a conversation, still less tried to, to pass it off as myself. What I have done many times, obviously, is quoted him to to identify and share with fellow fans. Uh, it's mm -hmm. always a lovely moment when when you realise that somebody else knows what you're talking about, and then you start you start testing them to see how okay how much do they actually know and you throw in a few little bits and and uh, you get that lovely uh, moment of recognition so yeah certainly that i don't remember ever actually kind of appropriating or using any i did i did memorize the the african lecture and perform it when i was about 11 uh but that was very much you know in a in a performance uh context i don't think i've ever quite had the chutzpah to just slip one in. Does any kind of recording exist of 11-year-old Matthew performing the Africa lecture? I'm delighted to say no. <laughs> <laughs> Your delight is my sorrow, Matthew. Hello, council people. This is Scott Sater and I coming from Central Virginia. Um, I don't have any questions. Just want to say that I really, um, during these... Uh, trying times that we're having. Uh, really enjoy the uh, council Facebook page. Um, although I think we've had enough uh, video clips of the boys washing their hands. They just passed another one, didn't they? Damn. Anyway, guys, stay safe, stay happy, and um, see you guys around. Bye-bye. Well, thank you, Scott, and thank you, everybody, for contributing to this very special episode, uh, including one last contribution that we're saving for the very end. Uh, this has been terrific, and uh, as we said at the top of the show, we're living in strange times, but one of the things we know we can count on is this comedy team and the larger comedy team that we're all part of, of the fans and followers of the Marx Brothers. Yeah, I got to tell you, it really was great uh, actually putting some voices and some faces with the names that I'm so familiar with. And, you know, I just can't wait to meet everybody in person and avoid shaking your hand. <laughs> yeah, as Noah said, we are we are living in strange times, but it's always good to make them even stranger. And you've certainly done that. So thank you very much. And uh, we were also uh, quite sincerely touched by how many of you said uh, just how much you enjoyed the podcasts and, yeah. and, and also how useful they've been. Um, uh, so, um, imagine me being sincere for a moment and, uh, thank you very much for that. 
Yeah, one one thing that is um, important in times of great uncertainty is uh, the little the little life rafts that we count on, and uh, you can count on us to deliver a monthly podcast in which we talk about the Marx Brothers. We're going to keep doing that, no matter what else is happening in the world. When I drift off to sleep at night, I think to myself. The Marx Brothers Council podcast is produced and hosted by Bob Gassell, Matthew Conium, and Noah Diamond, and edited by Bob, Bob Gassell, Gassell. <laughs> Visit us at MarxBrothersCouncilPodcast.com and in the Marx Brothers Council Facebook group. Subscribe to us on the podcast thing of your choice and follow us on Twitter. We really ask so much of you. Just please pay attention to us all the time. And now, as you know, we are in the habit of ending every episode with a song. And this time we've got something really special because one of our contributions from one of our listeners and council members is a song uh, inspired by both At the Circus and Dolly Parton. Hi, Marx Brothers Council hosts and fans alike. My name is Emily Blakowski, and I wanted to share something with you. So lately, I've been thinking a lot about At the Circus, especially in the moment where Groucho is hanging upside down yelling Pauline. I understand that a lot of fans cringe whenever that moment comes up. So to help alleviate that cringiness, I decided to make a song out of it. Let me clarify. So I took the melody and the instrumental to Jolene, and made my own parody lyrics on that. And now some of you have already seen that on the Facebook group page, and so I decided to make a full song out of it. So without further ado, this is my parody song of Jolene called Pauline. The instrumental I use is from Sing King Karaoke. Enjoy! Pauline, 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 help, help! Get me off the ceiling if you can! Pauline, 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 help, help! Castrate me, but I am still the man! Your beauty is beyond compare I could not stop staring Right there you could be a star Of the movie screen I don't want to be a pervert I thought I found something Right there for certain I had to shake you Pauline Right at that part The wallet dropped As we walked straight across the ceiling Aha! I said at that time And I can easily understand How you ran as fast as you can I don't know how to get off here Pauline Pauline, Pauline, Pauline Help, help Get me off the ceiling if you can Pauline Pauline, Pauline, help, help! Castrate me, but I am still a man. You could keep that wall in and there, but Jeff could lose everything if he doesn't pay the ten thousand dollars. 
I had to have this talk with you. My blood is rushing to my head, and I can hardly breathe. Pauline, 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 help, help! Get me off the ceiling if you can. Pauline, 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 help, help! Castrate me, but I am still a man. Pauline. Please, Holly. I love good music. So do I. Let's get out of here. Sit down.